If you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 131, you may recall when I was here almost exactly a year ago, I think it was just early March, right after Shepherd's Conference, uh, we looked together at Psalm 133, a beautiful psalm of unity, and uh, just uh, and how the Lord has in this last year brought more and more, dis, uh, more and more unity together as you as you have come together over a, the shared doctrine of scriptures and and uh, no doubt been an uncomfortable journey at times for all of you and uh, and so it was it, I'm just so grateful that when Lance asked me to come and I said I have several things I could preach and he asked me to preach on unity and I said well Lance I don't want to look like the hired gun who, who, who came in to speak. He said, Todd, we're, we're not ignoring the elephant in the room. We, we talk about unity every week. We recognize we're in a, a transition point in, in both churches' history. And, and so I have no doubt, though, uh, though I confess much of the last year and the last few months been consumed in my conversations with Lance, less about the church and more about what's going on in their family. But I know God is good, and I know he's building his church, and I know that you're a part of that. And, so uh, I decided to preach another one of this, as you recall, Psalm 133 is one of 15 psalms called Pilgrim Psalms, or Songs of Ascent. These songs that is the faithful Israelites, uh, men were required to go at least three times a year from wherever they lived to journey upward to Jerusalem, and hence they're called either traveling pilgrim psalms or Songs of Ascent because of the literal upward journey towards Jerusalem. And we're going to look at another one of those uh, Songs of Ascent this morning, Psalm 131, it, It lies there so innocently on the page, three short verses. Most of these pilgrim psalms are quite short because they would have been memorized and sung together as these family caravans traveled with one another. And and so I have little doubt that Jesus himself probably sang and memorized these 15 psalms. And so a a unique and wonderful privilege to look at them. And, And I love this psalm because it points out something that I would never have known if the Bible didn't tell me. And that is that there's a relationship between anxiety that we just read Jesus' words about in Matthew 6, disquietedness in our soul, and our view of God. The two are inseparable. And as a matter of fact, this psalm is, is, is David's going to use two different means, two verses of praying, and then he goes in the last verse, verse 3, he goes to preaching. And he'll use both praying and preaching to convince us that, that uh, there are that, that exclusive faith in God is terribly important and that humility is actually a cure for anxiety. And this is, these are two separate sins in my mind. Anxiety is one thing and humility is another. Uh, and this psalm, David, under the inspiration of the Spirit and his wisdom, will show you that underneath anxiety is, is a negative review of God, uh, a kind of spiritual pride that would basically say this, if I were taking care of my life, I could do a better job. An accidental, incidental, negative scorecard lifted up for God. It's Olympic season, so you know what I'm talking about. These scores that come up, holding up for God, 2.2 instead of the 10, 1,200 that he deserves. So let's look together at a fairly innocent-looking psalm that I have found extremely helpful, but I confess extremely convicting. And that's really what great preaching is, is you study, you get convicted, and then you just pass the pain along to others. So... (laughs) Psalm Psalm 131, let's read this brief psalm together. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. 
Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Once again, just the simplest of outlines. In two verses, David is praying, and in that prayer shows us the relationship between humility and anxiety. And then in verse 3, he goes to preaching. He admonishes the nation. And there, with, with not personal evaluation, but corporate exhortation, he also points out again the link between trust and worry, between your view of God and anxiety, between the spiritual humility required to be submissive in confusing and painful providences. So let's look together first at what David does in his prayer of personal evaluation. He, he does three things, if, you, if you're kind of creating an outline. He, sub, he says in verse 1a, I subdued my pride. In verse 1b, he says, I've subdued presumption. So I, I've worked hard to like pressing down on a geyser. This geyser of pride that comes out of my heart, I, I've subdued it. I've also subdued any kind of spiritual presumption. And then he's going to say, and then there's something I, I didn't subdue, something I pursued. I pursued submission. And so look how the psalm begins as he begins to talk about how he subdued pride in his heart. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. Now, you'll see this is the first of two negative things. He says, I'm not proud, I'm not haughty, I don't involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. So these first two, pride and haughtiness, first of all, can you imagine how unique it must have been for the nation of Israel? As a songwriter, I've thought about this. What if I'd sat down at the piano this morning and said, uh, I've written a new song I'd like to share with all of you this morning, and it, and it begins with these words, Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud. <laughs> You'd immediately begin chuckling and going, uh, I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> Who sings that? Who, who says I'm not proud or haughty? Now, what does David mean by this? How am I to take him? Because what you want to say is, David, I've read your biography. You were no perfect man. And there were certainly times in your heart when you were proud. What, what are you saying? Well, first of all, David's not pulling, trying to pull a fast one over on God. Look who he addresses his prayer to. Oh, Lord. And you notice in your Bible how L-O-R-D is spelled in all capital letters. That's the English way of signaling to you a specific name of God. This is the name that God gave himself when Moses asked the question at the burning bush, his commissioning to his deliverance ministry, when he said, who should I say sent them? And God said, say, I am that I am. Or literally, go tell Pharaoh, he is that he is sent me. It's an emphasis on God's self-existence. Not, not merely his eternality, not that he has always been, but that he, is, he, is, he needs nothing. He is utterly self-existent. But it's the name that God would then pick up from that time in Exodus and use throughout Israel's history, especially when he's making promises. So I've explained this, this word to my children in this way. This is God's covenant name. This is the name that makes God, the, to remind you that he is the promise-making and promise-keeping God. And so knowing that God is self-existent, knowing that David is using his covenantal name, clearly he's not thinking, this is a God I can fool into thinking I'm not proud or haughty. So whatever he's about to say is actually true. So what are we to make? Well, this must we have to put aside. He's not trying to fool God. Secondly, he's not saying, I've never been proud or I've never been haughty. We've read enough of David's other transparent psalms to know that he doesn't think that highly of himself. So either David is saying, Lord, you know how right now 
in prayer. You know how I've wrestled my soul flat. And I have humbled myself in this moment. Or he may be talking regarding a matter. Lord, for instance, he could have said, Lord, regarding King Saul and his pursuit of me, his desire to murder me. Lord, regarding Saul, you know, Lord, my heart has not been proud nor have I been haughty. And we'd be able to affirm that, wouldn't we? David had two opportunities to kill Saul and wouldn't raise a sword up against him in either opportunity. And so David is beginning by letting us hear a personal prayer where he is saying to God, Lord, you know either right now or Lord, you know regarding this circumstance that I'm not guilty of, of pride or haughtiness. So don't misunderstand David. He's not claiming perfection. So David is simply saying, Lord, I'm not right now proud or regarding this matter. Both the words used for both pride and haughtiness are are words that, that they're positional words. They mean exalted or high or lifted up. Sometimes they refer to tall cities or or, or tall city walls, rather, or tall trees or, or the waters of the flood being raised up high or monuments being raised up high. A few times this, these same words are used for God to describe him as exalted, But for the most part, these two words are used to describe a sin in the heart of man, where a man lifts himself up above others, where men in pride lift up their hearts in ways that only God should be exalted. And so David is saying, uh, literally, Lord, you know that right now my heart is not tall, and I haven't raised my eyes up above others. And so he's, he's claiming an appropriate spiritual humility that he has intentionally put on. You think about the Apostle Peter who says, clothe yourselves with humility, literally tie it on like an apron. This is sort of an Old Testament version of a call to that humility. And David is simply reporting to God, oh God, you know how hard I've had to work on this. And you know that right now I could say before you with a clear conscience that I'm not proud. Pride, of course, the Bible would teach, is, is the sort of, the fundamental vice. If there's a taproot from which every other sin comes, it is, it is pride. Now, make no mistake about it, pride is not arrogance. Arrogance is a subset of pride, but not all proud people are arrogant people. Think of it this way. You, you walk into a, a, a gathering, and there's one guy in the middle of the room telling jokes and drawing all kinds of attention to himself the ham bone of the room, right? So he's there, everyone's laughing and chuckling, and we would say of him, not only is he proud, he's also arrogant. But at that same gathering, you might find over against the wall, someone we might call a wallflower, an extremely shy person, who would never stand in the middle of the room and try to tell a joke, who's praying that no one will notice him or her, that no one will talk to them, if they can just get out unscathed. At the, the greeting time during the worship service is their lowest hour of the week. <laughs> that shy person. We never think of them as arrogant or proud, but in truth, they are equally consumed with who? Themselves. And so pride has many faces and can express itself in a terrifying number of ways. So when you hear David say, I'm not proud, don't hear him say, I'm not arrogant. Hear him say, I'm not consumed with myself. In the words of Paul, I don't think more highly of myself than I ought. My precious friend Lance once said to me, we were talking about my own areas in my life where I'm, I, would, I would have said at the time before I met Lance, I'm self-conscious. And, and he gently led me as a tender counselor to say, well, that means you're conscious of yourself. What would the Bible call that? 
This was early in our relationship. I remember going home and telling my wife, I'm either going to hate this guy or love this guy. Because <laughs> he got in my kitchen real quick. Uh, Lance went on to tell me, he just said, you know, humility isn't thinking lowly of yourself. I remember he said specifically to me, humility wouldn't be you saying, I can't play the piano or sing. Humility would not be thinking lowly of yourself. Humility is not thinking of yourself at all. You ever tried to do that for more than five minutes? We're consumed with it. And so David is saying, I, Lord, I am battling the constant set of thoughts about me. And sure, they, they touch on others, particularly the second phrase, my eyes are not haughty. The, the haughtiness of eyes is the lifting of the eyebrows, the, the looking down the spiritual nose at others. So you could think of it this way. He says, I'm not proud means I don't think highly of myself. And my eyes are not haughty, meaning I'm not guilty of thinking lowly of others, thinking meanly of them, as the Puritans would say. So my heart's not proud. I've, I've wrestled in my soul into a kind of humility. But not only does David say in, in the first half of verse 1 that he has subdued his pride, he goes on to say, I've also had to subdue something else that rises up in me. And it's a kind of spiritual presumption. And it's here that David begins to identify what is the nature of the pride that he's fighting. And it's, it's there in the second part of verse 1. Look what else he says. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. That's subduing pride, but now subduing presumption. Nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. The idea here of what David is saying is, when I was a boy, I used to think what he meant was, David's not guilty of walking up on a conversation about astrophysics, of which he doesn't know something, and then, you know how, you, if, if you don't know what people are talking about, you can just sort of remain quiet and nod, and people will think you do. Mm-hmm, yes, yes. I thought that's what David was saying. Okay, you're not guilty of that kind of pride where you involve yourself in in things too academic or too uh, above your intelligence level. That's not what David means. And and I'll tell you how we know that. It's it's the giveaway of the second phrase when he says, I don't involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. That word that's translated in my New American Standard, difficult, is the word that's most often translated in English Bibles, marvelous. I don't involve myself in things too marvelous for me. What does David mean by that? Well, the word marvelous is used several different ways in the Old Testament. For the most part, though, it refers to God's cosmic wonders, either in the heavens, the wonders of what he does at a cosmic level, or the wonders of what he's done in Israel's redemptive history, the mighty acts of God. Think miraculous things that only God can do. And so David says, I don't involve myself in things that only God can accomplish. And you want to talk about that which produces anxiety in your life? When you try to monkey in what only God can do. And why do we tend to do that? Because we're afraid God won't do it right. If I don't get in here and give God some help, then things are not going to go the way I want them to. And and so fear triggers a, a kind of inappropriate, rebellious, kind of covert a negative review of God and a, and a covert willfulness that, that wants to move his hand. So David says, my heart's not proud, my eyes aren't haughty. What kind of pride were you talking about, David? It's the pride of spiritual presumption. I mean, how presumptuous would it be for us to try to control something that only God could control? Think about the things that cause anxiety in our hearts that are utterly beyond our control. 
<laughs> I just made a list of some of them that came to my mind. When, when you try to affect how other people perceive you, that causes a great deal of anxiety and wastes a great deal of life energy. Do you have any control over how people perceive you? Limited. You can work at it. You can hope. You have no control over your health. As a church, you're journeying through that right now as you watch Beth and Lance and the family trust the Lord, as you trust the Lord, as you help and you pray, no control over your health. Which one of us will have cancer tomorrow? Which one of us will have a medical crisis? We don't know. We have no control over our health. We have no ability to make people like us. We have very little control over our physical appearance. If you're a student, you have very little control over your grades, though don't, don't go home and use this sermon as an excuse not to do homework. <laughs> The acquiring of wealth is, is a gift from the Lord. It's, it's not something that anyone can set their heart upon. And, so, and when you begin to try to control your health or what people think of you, your physical appearance, your life, when you try to build a secure life for yourself that somehow insulates you from any kind of suffering, all it does is produce uneasiness and restlessness and anxiousness. It, it can make you angry. It can make you manipulative. It'll certainly make you irritable. And David's going to begin to describe how that is, how that works in the heart in just a minute in a, in a kind of unforgettable picture. But, so David has said, look, I've subdued pride and I have subdued the kind of spiritual presumption. I will not reach out my hand to try to do what only you can do. But perhaps the greatest area where we have zero power that consumes and burdens our heart the most is the salvation of those we love. Some of you sit here with lost spouses, unsaved children, unsaved parents, unsaved siblings that you carry as a burden in your heart. You want to talk about something you have no control over their conversion. And so it's one of those things you have to entrust yourself over and over and over again to the goodness of God. And so, so David says, look, I am not guilty of tracking in. When he says, I, I, I don't involve myself, it means I don't make it the habit of my life to try to do what only God can do. Turn over just a few pages in your Bible to the book of Job, and I want to show you how Job uses this same word that in Psalm 131 is translated too difficult for me, but in the last chapter of Job is translated uh, with the word marvelous or wonderful. Job chapter 42, Job's final confession. Last chapter of Job, chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. Things, here's our phrase, too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Do you hear the humility of the role? I had gotten in a place where Job says, I lifted up my heart, and I said, hey, God, if you would show up in a court of law, I'll take the stand. I don't, even want, I don't need a court-appointed defense attorney. I will take my own defense and prove to you I did not deserve this suffering. And then, of course, Job is subpoenaed to court, and God plays hardball for several chapters of biting sarcasm that's intended to humble Job back to this place. He's assumed the humble posture of a student when he had, over time, he did, he did great in the beginning of his suffering, but in the dog days of his suffering, his heart got lifted up. 
where if he said, if God would give me an audience with him, I would instruct God. And so, no wonder he receives the spiritual spanking that he does. Here now, in the wake of it, he says this, Here now, God, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I retract. I retract what? My objecting words to your providence. My objecting words about my suffering. I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. You see here again the the, the humility. David uses the words, I'm not proud, I'm not haughty. Job uses the words, I retract and I repent. But they both reflect the same heart posture. But look again, there it is at the end of verse 3. I have spoken of things, quote, too wonderful for me, too marvelous. That's the same phrase that in Psalm 131 is translated, too difficult for me. Now do you understand what David's saying? Lord, I'm not proud in the spiritual sense that I'm going to try to tell you what to do or try to control what you do, or worse yet, the ultimate hubris, try to do it myself, what only you can do. I don't track in those things, God. Now, come back to Psalm 131. So David, in this personal prayer that we're overhearing his prayer, he says, I've subdued pride, I've subdued presumption, and now in verse 2 he said, but here's what I pursued. I pursued submission. Look at verse 2. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. That's his statement, and then he gives a beautiful illustration that we'll discuss in just a minute. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. That word surely is a part of a vow formula in Hebrew, where you'd say, surely if I don't follow through on what I promised, may this happen to me. It's very common in the Old Testament. David picks up here, and he doesn't finish it. He just says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul, and if I haven't, he doesn't give us that half. So I've I've pondered, why would you pick up half of a vow formula and not complete the balance of the phrase? This is David's way of emotively saying, look, with the same strength with which I would take a vow, he says, I I want you to know this is determination. And so what we gather from David is saying, I've had to work really hard at this. What is it you've worked so hard at, David? Surely I I have had to determine as an act of my will to bend my will to the shape of God's will. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. The word compose comes from a word that means to make things agree. And so the picture is that that he's made made his heart level and flat. There there are no places in his heart that don't agree. It's, It's a beautiful way to describe submission. I've made my heart to agree with God's heart. I've made my will to be the same as God's will. And when you're suffering, that is a hard thing to do. And so no wonder David picks up this vow-like language. I have determined to compose and quiet my soul. That word compose, it, it can be translated level. It means what you do to a piece of land before you would build a building on it. I know David knew nothing of bulldozers, but that's how I think of this in my heart. I have bulldozed flat my heart. No more launching objections, no more, no more divots and valleys, no more mountains raised up against you. I have leveled my heart, Lord. Surely I have composed my soul. But not only did he say he composed it, he said he quieted his soul. It's just simply the word that means hushed or stilled. It's the, it's the word in 1 Kings 19 to describe the still, small voice of God. 
So I've made my soul to be quiet. Flat as a pancake as regards your will, God. No more objections. And, and no more rising up in, with a loud voice to say, this isn't right. And then David gives an unforgettable illustration of what it looks like when you've mowed your soul down flat and made it be quiet. Look at this illustration. It's the illustration of a weaned child. Verse 2b, like a weaned child rests against his mother, and he repeats himself, my soul is like a weaned child within me. Now I have a confession to make. I don't really like poetry. Hebrew poetry is the only poetry I ever read. I guess with maybe the exception of hymnody. Hymnody, if you count that as poetry, but I don't read Robert Frost. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Oh, a flowery guy who plays the piano probably loves poetry. No, actually I don't. But I do love Hebrew poetry. But some of you still kind of objecting to, to imagery at all. Why would David repeat himself? Why use the image of a weaned child? Why then say my soul is like wiped twice? To slow us down. See, that's what illustrations in the Bible do. They force you to take your foot off the gas for a minute, decelerate with a brake pedal to just go, well, in what way is David's soul like a weaned child? And right away, by asking that question, what are we beginning to do? We're meditating. And so the imagery is sort of forced meditation. So men, no objections to poetry. It's in the Bible. And so by telling us twice, he's giving us a word picture. I've worked really hard to subdue my pride, to subdue my presumption, and I've had to work double hard to be submissive. And, and, and my submission, I'll tell you what my soul looks like, like a weaned child sitting on his mother's lap. Now let's think about that image for a moment. Children in the ancient Near East, children didn't wean until they were three or four years of age. So I don't want you to picture a crying handheld infant in the arms, now maybe being weaned and crying in their crib. This is a toddler with a will and some strength and a voice. Now you need to picture this kid screaming on his mother's lap, being tempted to kick up quite a fuss. A three or four-year-old can hurt a mother. And and what David says is, my soul is like that three or four-year-old toddler that perhaps in the past had been having a spiritual temper tantrum. And I want you to know that my soul isn't like that anymore. God, you know it's true. So it's sort of a confession. God, you know where I was. I was once unweaned. And Lord, you've weaned me. Now think about that. And it's interesting. Not a weaned child sitting at the table, now ready to eat table food. Not a weaned child sitting in a crib or cradle. A weaned child on his mother's lap, inches from what he or she is craving. And yet, laying on mama's bosom, submitted. Now, the child doesn't want something bad. It wants something that's been a source of nutrition and comfort and solace and joy. It's been a way that they've fallen asleep. Everything about this is cozy and tender and good. Why would you take it away? That's all that can be going through a child's mind when they're being weaned. Now, the mother in her wisdom would say, Child, I'm going to take away milk because there is such a thing as chocolate cake. There's such a thing as filet mignon. There's something better for you. But what's the child saying? I don't want something better. I just want what I've always known. Why would you take it away? The child has no mature capacity 
to grasp the wisdom of the adult. And David is saying, God, I have no capacity to grasp your wisdom of why you would take away something that I love, something that has been good for me, something that has been sweet to me. Why would you remove it? I don't have the answer to that question. I'm just going to mow my soul flat. I'm just going to submit. So this is what you need to picture. You ever heard a toddler when they're really going at it? It kind of sounds like this. <laughs> when it's, the plane's getting ready to land, and finally this is what you hear. <sighs> That's what David wants you to picture. He's saying, look, surely this was not something I did overnight. Surely, I worked hard to go. (sighs) And here's what's great about David. It's not resignation. It's submission. Right? Resignation would say, okay, God, fine, you're bigger than me. I have no power to trump you anyway. That's not what David's claiming. Holy Scripture would give us more than that. David says, I'm not resigned to the will of God. I'm submitted to the will of God, even in what I call the ministry of deprivation. The mother deprives the child because in her wisdom, she knows there's something better. And so God, you're like that mother, says David. I'm like that child. It's been hard to watch you deprive me, to take something beautiful away from me. But I will submit like a weaned child on his mother's I don't remember a lot of trauma with our own children's weaning, perhaps because it was done at so much younger an age, usually, you know, a year, 18 months. I do remember with our first child being such a soft-hearted dad, that, uh, which is a nice way of saying positively indulgent, uh, that, that it, was, it was our son's pacifiers that were the big deal. I remember that more than him weaning from milk to table food and getting rid of his passies was a big deal. And I made the mistake, I felt so bad for him, and saying, well, if you'll throw it in the garbage, then I will take you to the toy store and I will let you buy any toy you want. And so what I forgot on my drive to the toy store, this, this, I don't even know if they still make these, but the, this, is, this was a nice toy store that carried some teddy bears that remained behind glass. They were, called, they, were, they were German. They were called Steiff Bears, kind of the original teddy bear. And they're hundreds of dollars. And on the way there, I started thinking, what did you tell this child? You can have any toy you want. And fortunately for me, he walked into the store, and down low on the shelf was, you know, Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street? He picked up a little five-inch Bert doll, uh, which he, he still has in his cubicle at Wake Forest Hospital. So... I lucked out, it was five bucks. So, <laughs> I, I do remember, even as a parent, how hard it was for me to deprive. So there's two sides to this formula. God's not detached when in his wisdom he knows he has to deprive. God's not detached in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is in agony, bending his will to the shape of God's will. Jesus is sweating drops of blood. It was hard work for him to submit. And yet, no doubt for the father, it was hard to hear his son cry, why have you forsaken me? And so, so David says, I've worked hard on my side of the formula, Lord. I've, I have worked hard to, to rid myself of pride, the kind of pride that would try to do what only you can do. And instead, I've composed and quieted my soul like a child. 
David's prayer is over now, and he has a short one-verse sermon, an admonition. So we've heard a very private prayer of personal evaluation, and now David goes public with his public exhortation. So he was addressing God, now he's addressing the people of God. And what I expect him to say is, Oh, Israel, um, don't be proud. I expect him to say, Oh, Israel, compose yourself like a weaned child. Oh, Israel, don't involve yourself in what only God can do. And really, in essence, he does say that, but he actually chooses a new and fresh word. And and it's a word that's variously translated. What he says is, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. This word is sometimes translated, trust in the Lord. This word is sometimes translated, wait on the Lord. So this is that that complex, that uh, that matrix of meaning that says hope is, And wait, and while you're waiting, hope, and while you're waiting, trust, and while you're trusting, hope, and while you're hoping, wait, and while you're waiting, trust. It's all of that rolled together. So so he says, do better than me. Don't don't have a temper tantrum on God's lap when he deprives something from you. Hope in him. Have such a view of him that is so grand, so utterly convinced. Have such deep convictions about the goodness of God that even when he deprives you of something you dearly love, that you'll say, I still hope in you, I still trust in you, I'll still wait on you. The word O serves no grammatical function whatsoever. It is 100% emotive. O Israel, O God's people, O Bethany Church, hope in the Lord, wait on the Lord, trust in in the Lord. O Quinn family, hope in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Don't have, don't have a temper tantrum. You can cry on his lap all day long. Just don't kick. Don't bite. Don't scream. Don't assume ill motives on the part of God. Your mother's illness is no lapse in the goodness of God. It's a strange expression of it. I don't like it. I don't get it. You don't like it. You don't get it. Mow your soul flat. Just submit, which doesn't mean you can't be sad. You just can't object. You can't say you're wronging me. Because the wise adult in this illustration knows what he's doing. Hope in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. How long? A week, a month, a year? What is, how does he close it? From this time forth and forever, we get to heaven. We're still going to wait on the Lord and hope in the Lord and trust in the Lord and assume the goodness of God and sing of the goodness of God and worship him unpolluted, undistracted. And so the sermon is very simple. Oh, people of God, do better than I did. Be weaned quickly. Don't object. Don't doubt the goodness of God. The enduring nature of this hope. 
So, think of it this way. This is how I use this psalm as a diagnostic tool in my heart. I go through the psalm backwards. So, when I discover at times that it's noisy in my soul, do you know what I'm talking about? It's just like, you know, some days you wake up, you don't even know. I don't even know what's bothering me. So I need to take the time to rewind the tape and figure out what's going on. Why is it noisy in here? Why am I not composed and quieted? And according to this psalm, I can authoritatively say on the Word of God that if it's noisy in your head, then work up to the next level of the psalm, then work backwards. And what does that mean? That means somewhere in your heart, in your life, you're trying to do something too marvelous for you. That you're experiencing the unrest and the anxiety and the dissonance and the noise of someone who's trying to play God. You cannot save your lost loved one's life. You cannot change the diagnosis of health. You can't make wealth. You can't avoid poverty. You you name it. Somewhere you're trying to control what only God can do. And now work up one more layer in the psalm and go back to the very beginning. Because what you want to say to God is not, God, forgive me just for worrying but God, forgive me for the reason I'm anxious and upset right now is because I'm, trying to, I'm not believing you're going to do what you said you can do. But as a matter of fact, I have doubts about whether you'll do it right. And what would we call that? Spiritual pride. And now we're back to the beginning of the psalm. So when it's noisy in your head, identify where you're trying to play God. And then ask God's forgiveness not only for your anxiety but for your negative review of him that's basically saying, my anxiety is sending you a message, God, that you're not doing my life right. That what's happening to me is wrong. And that would be the ultimate in spiritual pride. Let me read to you from a, as I close, just a beautiful illustration of what someone who's composed and quieted their soul looks like. Richard Cameron was the leader of a a group in Scotland uh, who preached without the approval of the Church of Scotland. And they preached, they had to preach in the highlands, in in valleys, and hidden places, uh, tucked away in hills called conventicles where God's people would gather without the intrusion of of royal hearsay about what they could or couldn't preach. So this group of Scottish, they're called covenanters because they all signed a covenant in objection to the Queen of Scotland calling herself the king of the church, in essence, the lord of the church. And so in objection to that, they, uh, they began uh, meeting in private, and Richard Cameron led this group of covenanters. And, and he was eventually caught by soldiers called dragoons, and uh, he was beheaded. They cut off, they found him out in the field preaching, and there in the field they cut off his head and they cut off his hands. They left his body They threw his head in his hands in a burlap sack where they took him to the city of Edinburgh and and made sport, played soccer with his head and frightened young girls with his grisly hands. It's just awful. But then eventually put them back in the burlap sack and dumped them out in a prison cell where Richard Cameron's father was imprisoned for preaching the gospel as well. So in order to cause the father pain, they threw the remains of his son at his feet and they said, do you know them? And, and history says that he, he picked up his son's hands and he kissed them. And he said these words, Do I know them? I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me nor mine. Not who has not wronged me nor mine. Do you hear what he believes about God? God can.
cannot wrong me. It is the Lord, good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me nor mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. It is too late in a moment of crisis to retrofit what you believe about the goodness of God. You need to be pouring those convictions and deepening them, putting rebar in the concrete of your convictions about the goodness of God now so that in the moment of crisis, can this father possibly anticipate what's about to happen to him? Do you hear? You just knock the cup of his heart. What spilled out? You know, I read things like this and think, if someone would give an altar call, I'm going to go forward and get saved. Because this is just, what is this? This is a supernatural reaction. Now, I'm sure if we'd asked Mr. Cameron, if this ever happened to you, would you respond in a godly way? I'm sure he'd be humble enough to say, no, I think I'd fall apart. But the truth was, under the pressure of that moment, what he really believed about God came out. And your heart is also like a sponge, and under pressure, what you really believe about God is going to come squishing out. And so as a church, as you walk through this particular trial, you have an opportunity to glorify God by saying in sentiment the same thing that this dear godly man said. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me nor mine. David believed it. Richard Cameron's father believed it. Do you believe it? If you choose to read the character of God through your circumstances, you'll always have a small anemic God. Instead, we must learn to read our circumstances through the lens of our view of God. Circumstances don't tell you what God is like. Knowing what God is like helps you understand your circumstances differently. So with those thoughts in mind, let's just read the whole psalm together again. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for having such a shallow view of our anxiety. We know your word says, be anxious for nothing. We, we just read in Matthew 6 three times, do not worry, do not be anxious. We can barely bring ourselves to confess that anxiety is a sin. Much less have the humility for David to say what he did which is that my anxiety belies a kind of presumptuous pride that thinks it could take better care of me and mine than God Almighty. So, Lord, forgive us for our worry and what drives that worry, the pride that doubts your goodness, the pride that assumes we can see all and know all, the pride that that would decide what really is a bitter and and a sweet providence, which is impossible for us. We're locked in time, and you're eternal. We know so little, and you are omniscient. We're like the child who doesn't understand why the mother would say, no more milk. 
So, Father, forgive the pride that makes us anxious and help us to wait on you, to trust in you, and to hope in you from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, equip, use this piece of your word to deepen the convictions of this church, to help them to continue to minister to one another and to respond to the crises, both those that are corporate and those that are private for this congregation. Get yourself glory, Lord, by buoying the faith of your people so that the world that's watching just says, what is different about you? And so, Father, we know this doesn't call us not to cry, but to cry a different set of tears than the angry tears who are mad at God. So, Father, glorify yourself by using your word to conform us to your image and to deepen our convictions about your utter trustworthy goodness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.